0: felt like someone was watching. Something was watching. We've seen some eyes which were glowing a bright red. Welcome everyone. You're listening to This Sasquatch Show. Brought to you by Nicola Valley Bigfoot. Sit back and enjoy. And welcome to the show everyone we got a special episode for you guys all lined up here. On the phone, we have Thomas Seawood. Uh, for those who don't know who Thomas Seawood is, please, uh, you know what, I'll just let the man introduce himself. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me on. Kela to the listeners. That's uh, greetings in my language from the Kwakwaka'wakw people, northeastern Vancouver Island, where I grew up.
0: And for the people who, you know, the, the very select few people who don't know who you are in the Bigfoot community, would you mind telling us your background and, and how you got into it and, and everything?
1: Well, I'm 56. I was born in Alert Bay which uh, and, and lived there for about my first seven years and would go back every summer for uh, commercial fishing, salmon, seining. And uh, Alert Bay is famous and it's even getting more famous because of all the carvings of the wild woman of the woods, our our Sasquatch, that's what we call it. And it's our highest ranked crests. And you see it now when you go through Alert Bay, there are carvings all over the place, massive poles, welcoming poles, memorial poles in the graveyard that some of them have been there since the early 1900s. And and then of course, you go back every now and then for potlatches before COVID and you go up and see the chief and his family sharing their wealth, their crests, and those crests are coming to life and dance and song in the potlatch. And every family brings out their Junukwa song and their regalia, and you see their dance. And it's just, you know, all my life, that's how I've been sort of close to Sasquatch. And then being a commercial fisherman, traveling through the coast all my life, 45 years now, I've been a commercial fisherman. You know, I would always ask the question on deck or on the dock, net lofts, pubs, restaurants. Hey, what do you know about Bigfoot, Sasquatch? And then I'd hear the stories from other First Nations from throughout Pacific Northwest coastal region and commercial fishermen, homesteaders. And, you know, it was really intriguing all my life hearing that firsthand from people who encountered Sasquatch. And uh, in the late 1980s, I went into the Mouth of Knight's Inlet, the Broughton Archipelago. It's off northeastern Vancouver Island, across from Telegraph Cove, the famous Whale Watch Grizzly Bear Place, and just uh, northeast of Alert Bay, where I was born. And my Mamliacha tribe lived there until 1968 in the village of Mimikamlis. And it's pretty famous. It's known as Mamalala Kula, village of the last potlatch. Hardly the truth. And that's what I would do there for... Almost, I guess, 20 years doing a native interpretive tour to the sea kayakers, tourists who came in sailboats and yachts and would dingy ashore to see our fallen poles on the ground and the big house remains, the old houses, the old school. And from 1989 onwards, I was the summer watchman guardian there. And I would be in my cabin at night towards the end of the season, around the end of September. and I'd be reading a book by candlelight or something, and all of a sudden I'd hear the roaring whoops going from island to island to island. And I'd plug my ears and go, no, 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 I don't hear that, I don't hear that, because I knew it was the Jonaqas <laughs> coming into the area for the winter shellfish season. And, you know, I'd be scared out of my wits, and then finally one night I heard howling and roaring and whooping and on the islands across from me. And then right behind my cabin where there was some fruit trees, You can read a book called Totem Poles and Tea. Well, the Owens couple who had a homestead farm, non-natives, that's where my cabin was. I built it on their abandoned homestead. So there was wild plum trees behind my cabin. And when all this roaring and whooping took place, this
0: huge
1: bellow took place in the plum trees. I heard the noise. I something in there. I thought it was deer, but I guess it was this Chonahua. And man, did that scare me! And I'm just lying there, and I've got my gun beside me in my bed. I'm by myself, and I'm like, "What are you gonna do? Big hairy arm is gonna come through that window." That's when I bang the wall real loud with my fist, and I'm like, "Hey, can't you hear? I'm sleeping here!" And all of a sudden, you just heard this, and crash, crunch, crunch. Thing walked away, and then it dawned on me: everything I've been taught by my elders and people that taught me how to hunt and fish, about if you run across a Sasquatch or Junahua, they'll generally shake trees, throw things at you, or leave broken shellfish called cockle shells on the beach where they've eaten to tell you that we're here right now. Please leave. This is our area right now for harvesting. So you're supposed to turn 180, get in your boat, or walk away, and you're showing respect to the Sasquatch, the Junahua. So when I pounded on that wall and I yelled for it to, you know, give me respect, I'm trying to sleep here, don't be yelling behind me and my plum trees. Well, and he walked away and that's when it dawned on me, the elders were right. It's all about respect. Trunoha always respects you and you must do the same. And I came out in the bush in the mid 2000s in Washington state here when I got together with my common law partner, Peggy, it was around mid-2000s, I guess, and she introduced me to Finding Bigfoot and other Sasquatch shows. I'd look at them and listen and watch. and I'm like, hey, what's wrong with those mama akhwadus? How come they're always banging trees? All they're doing is telling the Sasquatch, stop, turn around and go back where you came from. I don't want you here. And I said, it's not very respectful because the Sasquatch was probably there first. And she asked me, you believe in Sasquatch? I said, oh, heck yeah, I've seen them lots. I said, heard them, smelled them. I said, they're just like white black bears, white deer, white moose. Eventually, you're going to see a white animal if you're out in the forest or elsewhere. Well, you spend enough time in the forest, you're going to see, smell, or hear Sasquatch. And I have, and yeah, they exist. And that's when I was sort of opened up to the non-native community. talking about sasquatches. I was very frustrated. They would say that the quakatoodle Indians from Northern Vancouver Island, I'd be like, I'm a quakwaky. Or <laughs> quaggywok. They even call me a quakatoodle. <laughs> they call their Sasquatch the Bokwiss. And I'm like, whoa, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on a minute here. Bukwis is a small hair covered bipedal creature in our culture. And it's uh, from the spiritual realm. It's a keeper of the ghost world. That's not our Sasquatch. Our Sasquatch is Junacha, because you see the female one carved and in our art and dance in regalia, but you also see the very rare male mask of a Junacha with a mustache. When a man becomes a chief, they'll put that mask on his face, and I think it's called Junachis when they put that mask on there and it basically acknowledges that he's done all of his obligations at a potlatch for the past chiefdom of his father or his family and he's fed the people, invited them the potlatch, opened up the kildis, the ceremonial, the symbolic box, the treasure of crests and songs and brought to life all of that family's crests and to life and dance and song. And Given out gifts, so he's done his obligations. And that's when they put that male chunaka mask on his face to acknowledge that he now shall be the chief of that family clan. So, you know, having that frustration with the non native people, you know, talking about our Sasquatch supposedly being Bakus, mispronouncing our name for the Sasquatch as well as our tribal name, and not just my tribe, others. And you know, I was just, and they'd mix it all up. Oh, and British Columbia is the coast is home to the Haida people. Wait a minute here, Haida is one of many of the tribes on the British Columbia coast. So I was, you know, getting frustrated and lashing out at the TV. And Peggy goes, "Well, why don't you do something about it." So that's when I reached out to the modern-day smoke signal, social media, and Facebook, and I started took over Sasquatch Island, this Facebook group, which I still run. Has a huge following. Please join, if you're listening, Sasquatch Island on Facebook as well as YouTube channel. And I'm educating people. Number one, being a hunting guide for over 24 years, specializing in black bear and grizzly bear, and living in bush for over 20 years, and commercial fisherman all my life. I'm bringing my experiences, my knowledge, and I'm sharing it through Sasquatch Island podcasts, going to conferences on Sasquatch, so that hopefully I'm, number one, teaching people to always respect Sasquatch. Don't ever think or try to harm them by shooting them or something. That's just ridiculous. You don't do that. But if you do have them allow you to get close to them, by all means, try to get that Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall interaction going so we can get conclusive proof of the existence of Sasquatch and see them on the cover of National Geographic. And then, in turn, our tribes and governments can work together to protect their territories, which is our territories and habitat as well. Because, as we know, as humans, we're destroying our world, and you know the Earth is, you know, very, very damaged right now. I can't even put sockeye in food fish jars because we don't, we're not allowed to go food fishing for sockeye because their numbers are so low because of overfishing, uh, fish farms of uh, logging, destroying the spawning habitat, overpopulations of seals and sea lions, the list goes on. So its I think the last vestige to getting the earth back in harmony and balance within the animal kingdom, it all falls on the shoulders of giants. It falls on the shoulders of Sasquatch. Once we have conclusive proof of their existence, then we can look and say, wow, we actually have this creature out there and we need to curtail our clear-cutting, our mining, our fracking, our urban sprawl, our damaging of salmon runs, and so forth. That's why I'm an investigator now, to correct the non-natives on the proper names and respect of the Sasquatch, but also hopefully to increase the chances of native and non-native that listen to me to better their chances of getting that conclusive proof of Sasquatch. So that's kind of, I guess you could say, what the creator Ekegeka Gekome gave to me. That's my mission in life, I guess. Now that I'm gray-haired and getting older, and knees are acting up, is to <laughs> educate everyone.
0: <laughs> right well, that's what a great segue because actually that's one of the main reasons I, I wanted to ha- have you back on the show. And and for the listeners, if you guys have been tuning in for you know for the just over a year that I've been doing the podcast, Thomas was one of the first people I, I reached out to to come on for the show. You know, I was green as grass and I still am kind of learning the ropes, but you were gracious enough to, to come on and do a great show for me. So, you know, I, I owe you a debt of gratitude. So I'm very grateful that you've decided to come back on. Um, the main reason I asked, I wanted you to come on is because it, it you already kind of touched on it a bit, but, you know, how the earth is, is, is changing. And it, I wanted to bring up a topic that's very, very dear to me, which is the recent wildfire outbreak in British Columbia. And for the listeners, if you haven't been keeping track, you know, British Columbia has kind of been on fire for the past, you know, two months or so. And it has destroyed, geez, 80, 85,000 hectares, the one fire that destroyed Lytton and threatened, you know, my town. So these fires are really out of hand. And and what I, you know, it's affecting a whole bunch of wildlife. And now I wanted to get your opinion, Thomas, on what do you think? How do you th- or actually, how do you think these wildfires have, a- have affected the forest people? Because you know we're seeing a huge influx of, of wildlife coming into the city areas now, uh, uh, scouring for food and for and getting ready for winter. Um, but how do you think Sasquatch has been has been changed by by the changing landscape that are, you know they're now faced with? Uh, you know, food food shortages. You know, lack of a place to live. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? How do you think this has affected them?
1: I look at it a different way. So when you're
0: walking through the
1: forests, that, you know, what little is left, that's old growth. And here in the Pacific Northwest and coastal region, when you walk through northern Vancouver Island and you see these giant fir trees, and you know that fir trees will not open cones up and release their seeds until there's a forest fire. And you see on these giants, that their thick, thick, fire resistant bark is fire damaged. And hundreds of years ago it was a forest fire swept through there. More than likely started by my ancestors. Because the ancestors knew that the humans were created to keep animal kingdom in harmony and balance. So when the creator created everything, he never put humans on, according to our stories. He would send his brother the transformer to transform animals into human beings in certain areas. And that's where the Kwakwaka'wakw people came from. And their sole purpose was to harvest animals for food, social, ceremonial purposes, to keep that animal kingdom in balance. Well, part of it when the humans came is they realized that you can't just let a forest grow. You have to have forest fires. Well, if your climate is not producing thunders and lightning well, then you have a summer of no forest fires. So they took it upon their themselves to ignite those fires. So when it comes to the Sasquatch, I personally, through my years of living in bush and investigating and, you know, coming up with, you know, what I what they used to call things that make me go, hmm, but someone told me they're called hypotheses. You come up with all these uh, uh, reason for things happening. Well, with Sasquatch, I know that they're, seasonal migrators in the Pacific Northwest. So in other words, in the springtime they're going to go where the hooligan, or where the herrings show up to spawn and they'll be in the areas where the sh- hooligans are in shallow water. When the spawn's over, they move to the area where the hooligans are going to be spawning on the glacier melt rivers at the head of inlets. And others will go to areas where the big low tides of spring are going to expose the beaches so they can get the scallops and the shellfish and the seaweeds and you name it, or sea urchins. And then come very time they head up into, well, logging slashes. What's a logging slash? It's an open chunk of forest that was created by man through logging. But isn't that indicative of what a forest fire thousands of years ago when the in, in native people were igniting them? it burns the forest, it adds nutrients to the soil, the berries start to proliferate first, the alder trees, the small saplings, and eventually canopy establishes itself, the berries and the alders die off, and you have an old growth forest growing. So the Sasquatches will go to the berry patches and the log and slashes during that springtime. And as the summer's developing and the snows are receding, they look up the mountain, and they could see just above tree line, the soaring kwa'wina, ravens, the cliques, the eagles, the turkey vultures. I don't know the kwa'kwala word for them, but I know that they're really starting to come back to the Pacific Northwest again. And when those sasquatches see that in the alpines, they go up there because the receding snows are exposing animals, ungulates, hoofed animals, mountain goats, deer, elk, and others that succumb to hypothermia cold and froze to death and got buried by snow and as the late spring early summer heat comes the snow exposes the carcasses what's well, like opening a refrigerator and there's the carrion you know a lot of people would cringe and say "Ooh, they eat carrion no they couldn't well every indigenous people every people from the six of the seven continents have have and still do eat rancid yeah. meat or oils so for Sasquatch, and I've heard so many reports of them, you know, people finding caches and avalanche chutes where there's ice of bones from years of of uh, animals being there. And seeing Sasquatches and the Alpine digging through the snow to expose a dead animal. So they go up to the Alpines and they hit it, the carrion. But as the snow decreases, well, up comes all of that lush vegetation, the rodents, the marmots, the deer and elk and mountain goat go there to fawn drop because of all that lush vegetation creates a lot of milk and the open expanses with no trees in the meadows of alpine they can see and smell and hear their enemies their predators so sasquatch is one of the predators up there capitalizing on fawn drop and the rich uh, vegetation the rodents and they stay there up until this time of the year when they look down from the mountains and they see the Sunlight sparkling off the backs of eagles and seagulls, and white down below in the rivers and streams because the salmon returns. And that's when Sasquatch comes off the high alpines down into the salmon areas. But during that heat of the summer, it's us hairless humans that unfortunately have to do like the people in Lytton. And I feel my heart's heavy for them having to run from their own community and go back when they're allowed and see that their homes are gone. Their family pictures and heirlooms and children's toys and clothes and everything they worked hard for is all gone by a fire. Well, Sasquatch doesn't have to worry about that like us, because during the summer, they're not in the lowlands in the forest where it's tinderbox dry. They're up in the alpines. And when they see that forest fire in the horizon, they simply watch it sweep by them. Or if the smoke comes towards them, they just go down at night down that mountain cross the valley, cross a creek or stream, up the next mountain. And by daylight, they're on a different mountain ridge watching that forest fire sweep by the mountain range they just left 24 hours ago. That's what I've been piecing together through my years of investigating, that Sasquatches, you know, and they're not in the forest and getting burned. And sure, someone will counter, what about Mount St. Helens Forest Fire, where they actually saw them running out of the fire Sure, you know it's like us having fires in our homes and our apartment buildings and hotels. In the most cases, we're alarmed. We know of it and we leave. But in few cases, people succumb to the flames and the smoke and die. And you know, I think it's just a small percentage of Sasquatches that make the mistake and get caught in the flames and smoke, because I'm seeing and put piecing together through my investigations that the Sasquatches will always be with the highest abundant seasonal protein is in the Pacific Northwest so they can fill their bellies in a short amount of time with the least amount of energy expelled. Well, during the heat of summer, the salmon aren't in the rivers, the berries are drying up. They're up in the alpines. And sure, there's, you can throw other cases out about so-and-so has an apple orchard. And he sees Sasquatches there in August. Well, yeah, every place differs, but once again, the compounding factor, the highest concentration of seasonal protein that they can fill that belly with in a short amount of time. So the majority of them are up in those alpines. And that's my hypothesis on the whole forest fire Sasquatch equation.
0: Do you think that they're staying away from these areas once they've been? You know, once the fire is swept through, I mean, it's going to take some time for, for wildlife to return. You know, plant life returns rather quickly, you know, mushrooms, spores, you know, small plants and things like that. But it, it does take some time for, for you know, hooved animals to, to return to the areas that have been devastated by fires. Do, do you think they stay in those areas or are they just going to, or do you think they come together as, as a tribe and decide, okay, what's best what? for us is to move to this area for now?
1: Interesting quandary. Because number one in uh, Vancouver Island, I've seen that they have established clan territories, just like we Kwakwaka'wakw and other tribes, all based upon a rich watershed with salmon and other proteins, uh, shellfish beaches. So they're migrating to and from Vancouver Island in my sea kayak camp, which is now a Sasquatch investigation camp. The five cabins that look like miniature big houses made a cedar with native designs I painted on them. It's a high traffic area of Sasquatch. July twenty ninth, if you go to Sasquatch Island you'll see a post I did where I put a bunch of trail cameras up. One of them that was on the snuff got knocked off and you can see pictures of it being spun around, see the treetops, see a shoulder with a hairy something on it. And then all of a sudden, the last picture I looked at, I went, oh, my God, I actually bagged and tagged the Sasquatch with my trail camera. It's a blurry blob Squatch, but you can see the two eyes, the nose, the pronounced filter from the distance between the upper lip and the bottom of the nose and a mouth and a black face and the hair and shoulder and arm. So to me, it's uh, the Sasquatches in my sea kayak camp don't have a Salmon River. They're established between Salmon River at uh, Kelsey Bay on Vancouver Island's east side, and just northwest of there, Adams River, which we call Hiladi, the land of plenty, and it's just loaded with pink salmon right now. But my clan isn't moving. They're staying right where my cabins are, where there's some bog and slashes and elk and deer and so forth, but uh, I'm seeing that they're eating starvation food. Around my camp, all of the three types of mosses have been picked quite extensively and on the logs and trees and so forth. The sea urchins, which were pretty abundant at one time, well, a couple of years ago when I went in there with Nathan Rio, one of the non-native investigators on YouTube, uh, brought him in there and we noticed a lot of sea urchins that were split open in half at low tide down on the water. Well, now when I go there, there's very few sea urchins. The ones that are there are kind of hard to reach. They're pretty deep and so forth. All of the Chinese hats, which are uh, shellfish called uh, uh, limpet, all the big ones are gone. The ones the size of loonies and toonies, they're all gone. It's just small ones that are there. And when I roll the rocks over at low tide on the beach, where my kids used to do that a few years ago, well, my son would be playing with all the little beach crabs underneath the rocks and the little fish called bullheads and the eels. Well... It took me quite a few rocks till I actually found some protein, an eel, a couple of small crabs. That beach where my cabins are have been just hammered for protein. So what it's showing me is there's a population increase in Sasquatches. So like everything in nature's code, according to Ikak the creator, you have to spread your gene pool. You have to go out as a young male and start your own territory, your own big house, so to speak. Well. Of finding my clan is in an inferior zone with no salmon stream. So it's telling me that the salmon rivers north and south of me have established clans that have probably been there for since the dawn of their creation, those family units. But here in the inferior zone, we're starting to see a lot more Sasquatch sightings on Vancouver Island and the islands offshore and the mainland. And what it's telling me is there's a population spike. So when your territory is, Nicola Valley and elsewhere in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest where we have these massive forest fires, hundreds, thousands of hectares. Well, it's, there's a big dilemma now for these plants. They can't stick around in the burned out areas because there's no protein. There's not going to be any protein for almost a decade when it gets really substantial that they can live off it. And now they've got to move off into someone else's territory? Well, we know our history. Well. That means if they move into other territories, and we've heard it on different Sasquatch postings of mass vocalizations, roaring and pounding of chests, and it sounds like there's, you know, a battle taking place. Well, maybe battles are taking place within the Sasquatch community. Maybe they are fighting over turf because every animal fights over turf wolves, cougars, bears, you name it. Right over their turf. And I think that's probably what we're gonna start seeing more and more of and hearing more of because of the amount of forest fires we have sweeping the Pacific Northwest, especially up in your
0: area. I do feel a sense of responsibility that, you know, as as people, we just don't respect Sasquatch and, and their home enough. I, I I honestly I know it's not it's not my responsibility to take on, but I'm gonna take it on anyway. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode is because we have to do something. We're we're destroying our planet. And along with our planet, you know, we're destroying our Sasquatch's homes. I, I mean, it's just something has to be done. Now, I wanted to also bring up, and you kind of touched on it again, is, do you think there will be an influx of, of sightings and encounters, you know, moving probably, if I had to guess, they would be moving more north towards the Prince George area, I guess, or, or the 100-mile uh, uh, area, I suppose. Uh, do do you think that there would be there will be an influx of, of sightings within British Columbia because you know, as the forest people you know they they move into a new territory you know and there could be more um, encounters with with people like do you think that's a possibility?
1: Oh well, yeah, we're definitely seeing that. You know, like one of the things I study is what I call, I class as the urbanized sasquatch. So I'm here at my southern home in Kent, Washington, just south of Seattle, and just east. East of me is Edom Claw and Buckley, separated by the White River. And, uh, you know, I've been going up there quite a bit. Me and my friend, who's a Cherokee that we investigate together, we found that when we sit there at about 10 30 at night, the porch lights are on, the home lights are on, and then all of a sudden you see lights starting to go off. And then... All of a sudden, you see someone on a back porch smoking a cigarette and they letting their dog out for its night pee. And all of a sudden, the lights go off. The bedroom TV goes off. The light goes off. And then within a half an hour of most of the homes, usually around 11.45 after sports on uh, the different television networks, it's quiet. All the lights are off. No dogs are barking. And then you hear the tree knocks and the chirps and the warbles and the cracks in the bush. The sasquatches are coming out of the forest where they sleep during the day and they're coming into that edge of the urban environment. They're going into the stables where there's grain and feeds for the livestock and chickens. They're going into the greenhouses. They're going into the gardens and the fruit trees this time of year. And year round, they're going into the compost boxes. You know, I'm sitting here outside right now talking to everyone and i'm looking at my little three foot high green box for compost well i actually investigated an area where a sasquatch was seen walking across the road with a green box in each hand hanging onto the handle swinging it as it's walking across the street in black diamond into the forest so being an investigator I investigated i looked at my garbage cans and there's a number i phoned it for the company that owns it and i asked for an investigator for um, boxes that are damaged or stolen or missing, and they put me through to so-and-so whose, depart- whose job is investigating missing or damaged or vandalized boxes, and all of a sudden after talking to them, we found six different uh, urban developments at the edge of the forest where green boxes are going missing. I went and investigated one area. And walking three quarters of a mile up a uh, stream in a pyroclastic area, so it's like a canyon of sand and forest. when I walked up there on a bend, lo and behold, I came across you know a bunch of green boxes that were empty, so right there it's showing you that what Sasquatch's doing, just like our ancestors, the indigenous people throughout Turtle Island, which I call Sasquatch Island, North America, they diversify or they die just like the Marine Corps Corps model in the US. So Sasquatch's population, now we can go back to nineteen sixty seven. Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, they come up spades and video film Patty at Bluff Creek, California. I was born two years prior in nineteen sixty five when there was about a thousand Kwakwakiwok in my tribe off northeastern Vancouver Island and spread out. Now we number over 5,000 or 8,000 or something. So my tribe has proliferated like bunny rabbits in my 56 years of life. Well, at that same time period, every other Indigenous tribe and the people of North America and the world have proliferated like bunny rabbits as well in the last 50 years. So that, with the sighting increases we're hearing, and with new territories that are inferior being established by sasquatch clans and then we have these urbanized sasquatches that are coming into our backyards and barns at nighttime while we sleep and fart and bed and snore <laughs> well it's showing us that the sasquatch population they too have proliferated like bunny rabbits since 65. so the urban sasquatch. A lot of people, that, uh, especially the Nisga'a Lumach, uh, when I listen to them and read their pod, listen to their podcasts, which they don't do very often. But when I go on Facebook, because I belong to so many groups
0: <clears throat>
1: and conferences, and I hear them speak, how they go eighty miles into the bush and look for a sasquatch. I always say, "Why are you going into the yarn basket?" You know, finding a sasquatch in the forest in North America is like finding a needle in a hayfield. You're not going to do it, more than likely. Shouldn't you be going to exposed areas, like a area that was logging slash that's established with berries and ungulates and rodents? And maybe you should go into a forest fire that's uh, rejuvenated after a burn 10 years ago, and there's ungulates and rodents and berries and tubers and mushrooms. Or maybe go to a riverbank that's all open and they're coming out at night to harvest salmon or hooligans in April, March and April, or maybe go to a beach that's exposed at nighttime with a massive low tide and the Sasquatches come out to harvest the shellfish. Or maybe go to the urban edge like I'm doing and setting up and watching and listening and seeing those Sasquatches come into the urbanized environment for the human produced proteins and other food sources like compost and compost boxes. So That's how I look at the whole Sasquatch equation. I'm not the guy who goes running out into the forest because I think it's a complete waste of time. So I go to the open areas where, with your FLIR, your forward looking infrared device, which I have two of them, one of them, FLIR 2, plugs into your cell phone and you can record video, record audio, record stills. The thing's amazing. You can pick up a deer 250 yards away in a field. Well, I've already recorded a few Sasquatches in Omaha and fields down there uh, on a beach in Vancouver, just across from Vancouver Island on Quadra Island three years ago. And so the chances of finding Sasquatch go to the open areas, you know, even though you do live in a forest environment, maybe you might want to look up the hill and go, well, I guess I'm it's sweater you're in all hell. And I climb through the forest and get in punched through into the Alpine and camp for a couple of nights because I got to sleep like a Sasquatch during the day and at nighttime, I got to sit up and smell, listen and flirt and hopefully light up with a spotlight, a Sasquatch or two and videotape them. So that's how I do things. And that's what I'm teaching everyone is quit being like the mama out there, the non-Indians running through the yarn basket, hayfield, the North America forest, be a stealthy Indian, head them off the pass go out into those open areas. And that's where you're going to find your Sasquatch and increase your chances of recording them.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I want to actually, I, I might have to get you back on another time to talk about the urban Sasquatch thing because that's fascinating to me. I, I didn't think they were getting that close into, to you know, people's territory type of thing. I kind of, I've been kind of under the the impression that they avoid us at all costs and no matter what they, you know, whatever it'll take, they'll just avoid us with all together <clears throat> um,
1: Every region's different, but just like the man generally thinks with a small head most times gets himself in trouble. Well, Sasquatches, their weakness is their stomach. That's what I'm finding. And if you know, like I went out when I got that trail camera captured July 29th last week. We went out to the same place, put more trail cameras in there, but I took a little metal pulley and I tied it to a tree, and it's like uh, on high ground and across 40 feet away was another chunk of high ground. And what I did was I put four bags that are mesh plastic netting, like onion sacks, but bigger, about one centimeter square holes for the Americans listening, that's what half inch by half inch mesh holes. And I put in plums, or pears, apples, bananas, and pears, and corn. And I pulled my rope on the pulley which lifted up the uh, line of mesh bags filled with food off the ground about eight feet. So no black bear could reach up and grab them. But if a Sasquatch comes, they'll easily be able to reach up and grab that like an onion bag and just pull it easily and rip it and get the food that's in there. And when I get back up to Canada here in uh, Wednesday next week, Thursday, I'm going to go straight through those cameras and Hopefully, all the food's gone, and hopefully I bingoed and got myself a few good pictures of Sasquatches.
0: You'll have to keep me in the loop, man. <laughs> I want to see these. Oh, yeah. Just follow Sasquatch Island Of course, man. Water of course. Both well, signal. <laughs> I'm way ahead of you, man. I love your group. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one more question before I let you go, Thomas. Um, do you think that they're going to return to these areas? I mean, I mean the, the, the devastation that the fire caused, the Lytton Creek Fire, uh is enormous it's absolutely and it's still burning as a matter of fact but um do you think they'll return to their to their own their home territory so to speak in in time as you know life kind of flourishes back into these areas that have been uh devastated by the fire
1: absolutely because me i believe the sasquatch is a, the true human so to speak i've come circle where at one time I used to think of, with Dr. John Bindernagel when I used to hang out with him when I first met him in the early 90s. I believed as he did that <clears throat> Sasquatch was on the branch of uh, the primates of Gigantopithecus blacky that came over with the Bering, Bering land bridge, mm-hmm. as our ancestors possibly might have done. But anyway, that's where I was for many years. But after seeing them so many times up close, and seeing how they harvest and how they act and then talking to other native tribes especially lucas white by uh, the omaha tribe member in macy nebraska on omaha indian reserve who introduced me to his Sitonga, their sasquatches because he grew up with them he lived in the bush from march until october when it froze up every year in the forest in and around macy nebraska and Sitonga, the sasquatch clan that he he interacted with them. Basically, he lived with them. So when I met him and I came back four years ago from Macy, Nebraska, I emailed Dr. John Binderdagle, uh Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Todd Neese from the American Primate Conservancy, Les Stroud from Survivor Man, his Bigfoot shows, and mm-hmm. I told them in that email I found Tarzan. So Lucas has taught me so much. He always starts out by saying they have laws, Tom, very strict laws. Then he educates me about how they are not allowed to touch human things, but how he'll find toys, children's toys, a bicycle, miles out in the middle of the hardwood forest in Macy. Well, no human left it there, no child. It was the Sasquatch kid probably picked it up, like the crib spinning toy with the bells and the spinners and the squeaky thing and so forth, and then all of a sudden a one of the clan elder one probably came by them and slapped the toy out of their hands and probably told them, "You know our laws were not to use human stuff, and that's why a toy ends up and a bicycle ends up in the middle of Timbuktu, nowhere, Omaha Indian Reserve." Hmm. So he also taught me they have language, they have songs, they have culture, they have laws, very strict laws. So once I learned that. And then I started to piece together more and more about my act- interactions with Sasquatch, getting close to them and stories and everything from the elders I've heard and still here to this day. I said, you know what? I think what happened, it's like the gods must be crazy. A Coca-Cola bottles thrown out an airplane window <laughs> in South Africa, lands in the middle of a Bushman's camp. And all of a sudden that empty bottle creates hate, anger, jealousy, violence. Everything negative came from this modern Coca-Cola bottle into his Bushman clan. And I thought about it and I said, you know what? That's why they have laws, very strict laws. And they're not allowed to have spears, mortars and pestles, uh, bows and arrows, paddles, knives. We don't hear of that very much. Actually, just the odd time. So I thought about it and I said, you know what I think happened? Tens of thousands of years ago, we know we were living like Sasquatch. We were seasonal nomadic migrators out there in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere in Sasquatch Island, Turtle Island, North America. And all of a sudden, we started to become into agriculture. And we were able to get a lot of abundant food that would last us most of the year and feed our family. And then we would build traps tagas out in my territories and we'd get all kinds of seafood fish and shellfish so we had leisure time so we could expand on our social dynamics of our clan our tribe we could expand on our culture and our tier systems and in turn we could make mortars and pestles stone clubs with intricate carvings ivory whalebone clubs beautiful art and all of a sudden jealousy animosity pettiness violence, hate, anger started to happen within the tribes of our ancestors. And I think some of our chiefs talked to their wives and said, this is BS. Look at us. We live in the 90 degree corners in our big house. We live in a teepee, a tule hut, a pit house, a long house. And look at all this anger, hate, warfare. All our tribe talks about is battling one another or battling the neighboring tribe or another tribe. This is so wrong. I think you and I should take our family and move back into the forest and live one-on-one with harmony with nature without all of the materialistic stuff we have. And I think when they sat down with their family unit and said, tonight me and your mom are going to walk and leave all of our tools and weapons. We're going to go live more one-on-one with nature, mano a mano with what the creator Ekakekame gave us. And in turn, those family units that did that, well, Ikageka made a creator. He has his evolution. He has those mechanisms to make animals and all of his creation survive. They evolve. So they evolved those humans that walked away from the fires and the houses and the material of the world. And they went back into the forest. Pretty soon their clothes wear out. And next thing you know, they get hairier. They get bigger more robust, stronger, because now they're a threat to the humans with clothes and weapons and the mass. The humans of the day, they go out to harvest shellfish or berries or whatever. And all of a sudden the humans, they start killing the Sasquatches. So Ikigekame, the creator gives them nocturnal vision and they become the humans of the night, the Sasquatches. And that's what I firmly believe. I firmly believe that Sasquatches are the pure human. That's the way we were once, and that's the way we should be living like they are, one on one with nature, not destroying it, always respecting, having laws, very strict laws. Look at us. Look what we've regressed to since we became hairless. We have regressed to a materialistic world of animosity, warfare. You know, we have regressed. To something that is not what AK Gekame, the creator, wanted. And that's why I firmly believe we need to find the conclusive proof of the existence of Sasquatch. That way, like the 1970s commercial of a buckskin Indian in a birch bark canoe paddling into the urban environment, the see in the pollution, the traffic jams, the garbage dumps, bumper to bumper gridlock. He, at the end of the commercial, 30 seconds, he looks at all of this damage. And destruction by humans, and a tear comes down his cheek. That started Greenpeace. That started the environmental movement, that commercial back in the early 70s.
0: Yeah, I remember. That's
1: where we're at again. Need to find Sasquatch so we can get back to what that buckskinned Indian and that commercial was all about. We need to correct what we're doing because we're destroying this planet.
0: I agree. 150,000%. There is a there's an awakening awakening that's coming and uh if, if you're not with it then you know i, I don't know what to tell you but th- there's something is changing in this planet and uh sasquatch is uh kind of leading the way in, in my own opinion they they they've been managing to live in peaceful harmony with nature for ever forever since time began and yet in the past before
1: we end though i'd like to send a message to all of the listeners out there especially the indigenous ones At the beginning of COVID, first wave over a year and three quarters ago, some of us got word out to the tribes that had interactions, feeding going on in their backyards with their Sasquatches to go outside and just as it was getting dark, have four sticks that were big enough that it would take everything you could to put it over your head and break it, snap it, go out, snap a stick, start coughing and retching like you've got COVID, you're sick act like it. Snap the stick. Do it again at dark and twice more into the dark. Pass the message on to the Sasquatches that we humans are sick again. And we talked about it. And I think the first podcast I did with you, if not, you can go to Sasquatch Island and or uh, One Strikes Radio and go to my Sasquatch Island podcast series and listen to Sasquatch and smallpox. But anyway, that's what we need to do. Pass the message because this fourth wave that's coming, it's either going to be fizzle out fast, which we hope, or it's going to keep climbing and be a mega wave, a tsunami, and clean out some of the humans. Because as the flood stories talk about, we're at that point again in humanity on this planet. We're back to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're back to before that, when the great floods came with Moses and with the indigenous stories of the great flood. Well, the great flood, I think that's coming now, possibly could be a pandemic. So, you know, maybe we should do everything we can to let our Sasquatches know that we're sick again and please stay away from us.
0: Yeah, you protect them. Uh, I think we owe them that. I, I definitely believe we owe them our protection and, and our apologies. So because we, we, we've done so much to you know, disrupt their, their livelihood and then, you know, their family units. And I think that the least we can do is just leave them be, you know. They, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Thomas, this has been fun. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I really do appreciate you coming on again and 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 sharing your your insight as to, you know, the, the, this just in what's happening in today's climate. So thank you so much. You're
1: welcome. Ghalakay Go in peace.
0: Is there anything you want to promote before we before we get off the
1: get off the air? Just basically Sasquatch Island Facebook group. Seasons of the Sasquatch, my newest one. That's on the foods they harvest at the Facebook group and uh youtube channel sasquatch island sponsor radio if you want to listen to my podcast and see video casts i've done but if you really want to get entertained go to youtube and type in sasquatch island uh tom seawid s-e-w-i-d and you'll see all kinds of videos i've been doing through the years showing you the pacific northwest out on the commercial fish boat and some amazing sasquatch territory
0: yeah it's definitely good stuff i can definitely attest to to the quality of the content that you're throwing up on youtube so For the listeners, go check it out. Once again, Thomas, thank you again for coming on. I sincerely appreciate it. And for the listeners. Okay, thank you very much. You betcha. You betcha. And for the listeners, if you guys just want to hang around, we're going to close out the show. Stay there. And welcome back, everyone. We are back to pull a pin on this episode, but before we do that, we have to give a huge thank you to Thomas Seawood for coming on. Um, you know, Thomas is so full of information and knowledge about Juniqua, or, or hopefully I'm not butchering that, but uh, Sasquatch, uh, that it, it's it's a pleasure to listen to him speak, and I, I love having him on. So thank you, Thomas. I really do appreciate it. And and for the listeners, go check out his stuff, like really, facebook.com slash Sasquatch Island, uh, Sasquatch Island on YouTube and Monster X Radio, and, and, and the list goes on and on. Uh, he's heavily involved in in the bigfoot community so give him some support cuz he's such a, a great contributor to or contributor to uh you know all things sasquatch and he's such an advocate for for the forest people that i i, I really enjoy talking to him so so thank you thomas i appreciate it um you, you know and before we get out of here one other thing too is that you know this was really um i know i was kind of straight off the the beaten path a little bit with this one but you know, let me back up. Let me explain myself here. Um, for the past year that I've been doing the podcast, I, I generally ask my guests if, if I can, if, and if it suits the the interview. You know, how has your encounter changed you? And, and you know, that's one question I've never asked myself. And since my sighting, you know, my opinion on 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 you know Sasquatch has changed quite dramatically. Actually, I, I was one of those people that was, you know, they're they're just a. A lumbering animal, and I compared them to the intelligence of of a deer or a moose, you know. And boy, was I wrong! I was very, very wrong. Uh, th- these people are, you know, sentient. They they have love. They have families. They have, you you know, they're 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 us. You know, a hundred thousand years ago, and you know, I I don't take that lightly anymore. And with the recent wildfire activity that has gone devastated, I shouldn't say gone through, it's devastated our, our province, and it's still burning, as a matter of fact. At the time of the recording, you know, the fires are, are being held, but they're they're still burning. Um, it, it really affected me because it made me think about, you know, their home is gone. You know, all the Sasquatch were, that were in that one area, and then I'm only referring to one BC fire, which burned like 85,000 hectares and that's just one fire and there's many 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 more um but all the displaced sasquatch that are now you know having to relocate and re just start over again and you know they're they're going into other clans territories and hopefully they're working things out and you know that they're they're becoming welcomed into other territories you know i think that's the proper thing to do and i'm hopefully that that's what's happening um but it never really kicked in for me until i got evacuated and then that really made me think that you know what i I'm, uh, i i kind of understood how the, what they were going through and what you know the 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 sasquatch have to deal with i mean on a different level obviously but it still made me think and it turned something it turned a light bulb on in my head that you know something has to be done we um we we should start looking In the mirror a little bit and seeing what we're doing to the planet. You know, Sasquatch has made me very, very aware of uh, of how precious our lives can be. And you know, if if so, to end this little part of my my spiel here, how has Sasquatch changed me? In more ways than I can probably imagine. One of them being that I have a lot more respect for nature and the forest and, you know, just life in general. So that's how it's affected me. Um, and that's why I wanted to do this episode, um, just to kind of get it out there. And Thomas just seemed, well, Thomas was the, the guy to talk to, obviously, because he knows quite a bit more about forest life than I do. So thanks again, Thomas. I, I sincerely appreciate it. And um, you know what? When I post this on Facebook or if you guys are wherever you guys listen, just if you want to make a comment about anything like that, then please, by, by all means, I, I love reading them. So let me know what your guys' thoughts are on the matter. Okay. Uh let's go on let's move on here and let's push this button, we'll find out what's coming up next week. On the next episode of this Sasquatch show. Brought to you by Nicola Valley Bigfoot. And it looked like he had a kind of a cone head a little bit. And he had no neck. And he looked like he had long arms. And he just stood by that fence pole and he just watched us while we were playing. And we were winding up our kite and we didn't want to leave it. We were like, kind of getting nervous. And we watched it and he watched us. So tune in for that. We're going to have Reba from Montana on, and uh, she's going to talk about the time that she saw a Sasquatch when she was uh, playing as a child. So tune in for that. So let's get out of here. But before we do that, I'm going to plug the show. Guess what's coming, people. If you want to be on the show and you've had an encounter, I can be contacted at nicolavalleybigfoot at gmail.com. That's N-I-C-O-L-A, nicolavalleybigfoot at gmail.com. I'd love to get your stories on the air, and uh, I'd love to hear your stories, actually, so uh, get in touch. nicolavalleybigfoot at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined, go to bonfire.com and then type search Nicola Valley Bigfoot Podcast, or no, Nicola Valley Bigfoot Shop. There you go. Um, you can find shirts if you want to support the show. There's now hoodies and mugs and that sort of thing. So go give it a little look-see there and uh, I'll try to leave a link if I don't remember because I tend to forget things quite easily these days, you know, I'm a man of a certain age and, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, you guys understand, but anyway, so let's get out of here now. It's, uh, I think I've taken enough of your time. Um, so once again, you guys, let's, uh, be a little bit more, uh, fire smart if we can. Uh, I know it's fall fall is coming soon but i can't hurt just to make sure that that fires out so until next week guys i will talk to you later and be kind to each other and i will talk to you then bye